Uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Hey, thank you. Uh, yeah, my, I am Mike. Thank you. Uh, one of the pastors here. do want to welcome everyone here. Um, and I do want to say, as already been said, uh, happy Father's Day. Um, I want to start with a real quick story. So uh, a few days ago, I was upstairs at our house, and I came down to the, to the middle floor where Aaron and the kids were. Uh, and as I'm coming down to here, the kids go, shh, shh, he's coming, he's coming. Don't tell him, don't tell him, don't tell him. Uh, and so as I get down there, my uh, five-year-old son, Eli, comes up to me and goes, Dad, we are not making cards for you. <laughs> and so, to my surprise this morning, uh, there in fact were cards for me being made, and uh, I got Father's Day cards, so it is Father's Day. Uh, we don't want to say that. Uh, and I want to say, you know, it is that mixture of we want to be grateful, like, you know, Milton, Matt even said, of Father's Day. But to be honest, Father's Day, like a lot of holidays, can be tough depending on what our relationship is with our fathers, uh, maybe wanting to be fathers. Arguably, the most complex and maybe convoluted relationships we may have is with our parents. Uh, and so this is a celebratory day, but it also can be a hard day. And so with that, as we continue in our faithful series this summer, where each week we're going to look at one of the promises of God that maybe kind of take root in our lives and grow and bloom, uh, today we're going to look at a promise that regardless of how necessarily Father's Day hits you, um, we can all share in the glory and the encouragement of what it means to have a heavenly Father. So, in fact, that is the promise that we will be discussing today. If you want to go ahead and turn uh, to the Gospel of John, uh, go into that. That's where we're going to start today. But the promise today is simply this. God is our Father, and we are His children. Uh, so again, if you haven't already turned, uh, open up to John chapter 1, because we're going to see how God gives this, this uh, explicit promise, but not only what this promise means, but it's kind of packed full of some promises underneath that. So we're going to just dive right in together. So if you're in John uh, chapter 1, we're going to read verses 11 through 13, follow along in your Bible, or you can look on the screen here where the promise says this, he, Jesus, uh, came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So as John opens his gospel with this passage, there's a few things to note really quickly. So it says here that Jesus came, when he came in the flesh, when he came to earth, he came to his own people, the Jews, but they rejected him. And with that rejection, they also rejected the promise of adoption into God's family that comes through faith. But it says those who received him, he gave this deeply rich and life-altering promise that they can claim to be God's children with God as their father. So now the idea of God as father may not be radical or new to many of us. In fact, even if you didn't grow up in church, you're probably familiar with the concept of God existing as Trinity. So one God existing as three persons eternally, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so the Trinity is a mystery for sure. It's bigger than our you know, finite minds can fully grasp. But the truth of the triune God might be where you and I were first opened up to the idea of God the Father. But as it is sometimes stated, familiarity breeds contempt, right? Sometimes being so familiar with an idea means we've lost the wonder 
and the impact that a truth can have. So today, I want to revisit that promise together that God is our Father, and we are His children, and also what other promises are kind of found packed inside that promise. So actually, God calling Himself Father can be traced throughout the Scripture, even back into the Old Testament. So references to His fatherhood, or even directly calling Himself Father, can be found in the books of Deuteronomy. It can be found in the books of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. So... Among other titles for God, like Yahweh, I Am, Lord, King, Redeemer, Creator, Jews in Jesus' day would be familiar with the concept of God calling himself Father. But it wasn't until Jesus came that a deeper understanding of God as Father and us as his beloved children became more fully seen and understood. In fact, if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, you'll know that when Jesus was calling God his Father and instructing his followers to do the same, that's often when Jesus got in the most trouble with the religious leaders. So going back to the promise and the opening lines of John's gospel, we see that even for John, the idea of God showing himself as Father was so central to John's desire to share Jesus that he includes it right at the very beginning in the opening lines of his gospel. So as we see here in verses 11 and 12, John is saying at this time that there were two groups of people, those that received Jesus and those that did not. So what does that really mean? Well, let's take a look at that word receive. So we'll look at a little closer here. It literally means to take hold of, to grasp. So there's something that one group of people who were exposed to Jesus took a hold of, grasped, and the other let go by. So again, what does that taking hold of and receiving Jesus mean? Well, as you can see in this verse, John explains it by way of parallelism, which means he's going to say the same thing in two different ways. So he says, all who did receive or take hold of him, who believed in his name. Taking hold, receiving, and believing in faith in Jesus are the same thing. John is saying that the difference between these two groups of people was there was one who was, who was trusting in Jesus with their lives and those that aren't. Hear this. This is the condition for the promise of the rest of the statement. That those who believe, he gave the right to become children of God. Now again, gave that right is like a legal term. Like it means uh, power, authority, or jurisdiction. So what it's saying is that those who took hold of Jesus have the legal power and authority and jurisdiction given to them from the almighty king of the universe to claim God as their father and to be his children. So already you can see there's an answer to the question that's out there in the world. Aren't all people God's children? So I remember a story when I was a youth pastor back in the day. Uh, we took our youth to a, a day out at an amusement park. Uh, and on the way back, we're taking this tram, I'll never forget it, back to our, our cars in the parking lot. And one of the students looked at me and they asked kind of that same question. They said, you know, aren't all God's people, uh, are all people God's children? Isn't everyone a child of God? And so using this verse, I kind of instructed the young man and said, well, hey, that's actually not true. God tells us not everyone is. Uh, and I pointed this horse. And I remember, like, the row in front of us, this kind of older lady's head just on a swivel turned back, and she gave me the dagger eyes. And I turned to the kid, and I said, I'm about to go ask Jesus myself. Um, <laughs> um, she's looking at me, and she goes, I never thought of it that way. 
And the reality is, most of the world doesn't think about it that way either. If you, and I don't mean this as an insult, but if you've got like a shallow or new or a nominal type understanding of Christianity, you might think, oh, everybody's a child of God. Everybody's a child of God. Especially if you're near, if you have just some kind of like spiritualism or some like general deistic view of a God out there, you think, oh, we're all God's children. But that's not what God says. In fact, he says it's very different. That the claim of being a child of God is conditional. It is not for everyone, just those who take hold and believe of Jesus as Lord and Savior. So then that begs the, the other question. If someone isn't a child of God, then what are they? Well, again, God tells us. He says that the nature of our hearts, in and of ourselves, were born sinful. We don't desire God, we don't desire his ways, and we definitely don't desire a genuine relationship with him. Our hearts are set against God from birth, and our lives show it. It's in our selfishness, in our bitterness and anger, it's hatred and violence, in our self-exaltation and pride, and ultimately in trying to find who we are and our worth and value apart from God. And that selfish, hurtful, evil idolatry that we are accountable for will see judgment from a holy God one day. So that's why when God isn't our father, God calls us sons of disobedience and children of wrath, both of those in Ephesians. And in fact, in later in Ephesians, he will say that those sons of disobedience have no hope and are without God in the world. So going back to John's gospel, that's why Jesus came. So that you and me and the sons of disobedience and children of wrath without hope or God in the world would not reject him, but would receive him, would take hold of him. And in doing so, take hold of God and go from a son of disobedience to a son of God, a child of wrath to a child of grace from no hope without God to an unending assurance of hope with God as our Father. But more on that later. So Matt Villalobos had a great analogy about this that I'm going to straight up steal. So that's good. It's about how God relates to humanity. He says, so for everyone here, right, at CBC, you and I have a relationship, and you relate to me as, as Mike. That's who I am. In fact, you also can relate to me as pastor in a role that I have. But there are only three people at CBC, that can also call me dad. And so it is with humanity. God is God and Lord and maker and creator and sustainer and sovereign king and more to all of mankind, but only father to his children. So we have this promise as believers who have taken hold of Jesus that we have God as our Father and we are His children, but, but practically in our lives, what does that mean for us? And again, like with all of Scripture, more than we have time for in one sermon, but sort of like Russian dolls that we kind of open up to see a promise, and there's another promise, and another promise, and another promise. We're going to open up. What are the promises underneath this promise? Specifically, when God is our Father and we are His children, we have a promised adoption. We have a promised access. We have a promised provision. And we are part of a promised family. So let's keep going. 
as we mentioned, God refers to himself as Father throughout Scripture, but he does so like exponentially in the New Testament. So if there are around like 15 or so references to God as Father in the Old Testament, there are about 165 references to God as Father in the Gospels alone. And like the Gospel of John holds a hundred of those. And so that doesn't even include Paul and Peter and the other writers of the New Testament. So what I'm saying here is in the New Testament, this promise is everywhere. And it's full of richness and deep effects to who we are and how we live. So I want to look at just a couple, just a few of those New Testament references to God as Father, just to see a glimpse of what this promise holds in store for us. So the first we want to look at is found in Galatians 4 verses 4 through 7. If you want to turn there, or we'll put it on the screen. But God's word says this through the Apostle Paul. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir to God, through God. So the first promise kind of under that promise is that God as our father means we have a promised adoption, a new way of relating to God, a new identity with God. So like we mentioned, we were once outside of God's family in disobedience and wrath, but in our adoption, everything about who we are has changed. We are no longer who we were before we believed. Slaves to sin and separated from God, but now in our adoption and new relationship with God, we are set free from the power of sin as beloved adopted children who have his spirit working in us. And did you see what what Paul said at the very beginning of this passage? It's amazing. He uses that phrase, when the fullness of time had come. It's the culmination of all of history, the entire story of existence, and the purpose of the universe brought together in this like epic planned moment when Jesus would enter our world for our redemption. And what was the point of his coming? What was the purpose So with that question, we might be tempted to answer the reason that Jesus came to earth was to forgive our sin. He came to forgive us, to take our sin upon himself on the cross, and trade with us his perfect record of obedience. Is that the reason Jesus came? Yes and no. Stick with me. Here's what I mean. Did Jesus come to take the cross for our sin and rise again over sin and death? Absolutely. But Paul is telling us here, don't conflate the means of our salvation with the end of our salvation. No, the end is what? The end is our adoption. The end is our inclusion in God's family forever, being with God forever. God's end in our redemption is us with God. The cross and, our, and taking our sin is a means to that end. So yes, Jesus came to die on the cross and forgive us our sins. Yes, absolutely. In order that we might have a new adoption, a new identity and relationship with God. No longer a child of wrath, but an adopted child of the King. 
So many of you know our family's story, that Aaron and I walked through infertility uh, at an early uh, part in our marriage, and that sent us down this journey of adoption of our three little ones, Eli, Maddie, and Aiden. Uh, and they're actually embryo adoption. So my wife gave birth to our adopted children. Let that freak you out for a second. Um, no, we adopted embryos, and Aaron gave birth to them. But while our children don't share any of our DNA or genetics, they are legally and fully our children. And I can tell you this. As I look at my adopted children, they are 10,000% my real and official and full children, always and forever. And not because of genetics, and not even because of some kind of legal court document or anything like that, but because, as Christian recording artist and adoptive dad, Ross King, uh, who, who wrote a song about it, said of his own children, it's not flesh of my flesh, not bone of my bone, but heart of my heart and soul of my soul. That the adoption my kids have means that they bear my name, but they also bear my heart and they bear my love. And if in my human weakness, my adopted children can rest assured that they will always and forever be mine, how much more can we rest in the assurance of the love and grip of our Heavenly Father who has over us in love? You see, when God is our Father and we are His children, it is the fulfillment of the purpose of our rescue in Jesus. And now we have a new relationship with God, not just Creator, not just Almighty God or Judge and Lord, but our adopted Father forever. God is our Father, and we have a promised adoption. And with that adoption comes a promised access. So as we just saw in Galatians, uh, that our adoption brings with it the ability not only to have a new relationship with God, but now we have a new access to Him. The Holy Spirit, when we believe, enters into our hearts and confirms our newness of life and new relationship with God. And in that, it stirs in the depths of who we are that we can and should and will cry out to God, Abba, Father. So many scholars look at that term, Abba, uh, as kind of an endearing way of uh, addressing a father. So even the words Abba, like the phonetics, sound like something a young child could put together as a way of addressing their father. It's similar to like Dada, right? So commentators say that what God is telling us here through Paul is that while there is definitely an authoritative nature to God's role in the family and household, I'm sorry, a father's role in the family and household, there's also a tender, loving, compassionate aspect of a truly good father that now we have a promised access to. So for example, do you remember when Jesus was with his disciples and his disciples said, hey, teach us how to pray, right? He's, they said, give us, give us lessons. So here we are, Jesus the second member of the Trinity, God in flesh, the highest expert when it comes to prayers, was asked to give a lesson on how to pray and how does he tell his followers and us to start our prayers? O mighty Lord, O gracious creator, O merciful redeemer. No, those are all true and good ways of approaching God in prayer. But no, how does Jesus tell us to address the king of time and space and all things, our Father. Beloved child of God, take a moment here. 
Let this sink in. Those that have taken hold of Jesus, trusted in his life and death and resurrection, that have been adopted into God's family, he desires you and me to come to him and to pray to him and to walk life with him as our loving father. If you're like me, you know that you probably should pray more, right? And, and But for a lot of reasons, uh, sometimes we struggle. But one of the reasons we might not pray is because we feel shame or unworthiness or that in God's disappointment of us, he really doesn't want to hear from us. And while, yes, when we come to our God in prayer, he is worthy of our reverence and our respect. And yes, he does know our sins and shames and and guilt, and we should confess them to him. But I believe Jesus is telling us here that our posture as we come to almighty, holy king over all creation is that we come to him as father with all the love and care and compassion a perfect father holds for the children he loves. The psalmist would say in Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Those who fear him, another way of saying those who have taken hold of him, his children. And perhaps when the author, this is why the author of Hebrews says in in Hebrews chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, family, Jesus has removed the barrier of sin and now grants us access to the throne of heaven. And God tells us the one who sits on that throne is our compassionate Father who loves us dearly. And so when we come to him in humble prayer, even in our brokenness, even in our guilt and shame, our father never turns his heart away, but in fact, draws nearer to his dear children as we draw near to him. So what I'm saying here, and I believe Jesus is teaching us here, is right now you and I have access to the ear of heaven. We have access to the heart of God. That's the greatest thing you and I possess right now. Access to God in prayer. Not our 401k, nothing on our resumes, our degrees, or job titles. It's not our followers, nothing that comes with a receipt or needs batteries or that we hang up on a wall. Our greatest asset we have is the promised access we have to our Father in heaven. Like an infomercial to say, but wait, there's more. That access in prayer also gives us the promise of provision. So, the most famous message ever given by any teacher, ever, any person to ever walk the earth throughout all of history was the Sermon on the Mount given by Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew's chapter 5 through 7. Those chapters have transformed individuals, people groups, cultures, and have transformed history on the profound reordering that Jesus gives on how we are supposed to live in God's world. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reorders our view of God in many ways, including repeatedly 
instructing his hearers and how to live in a world where we can approach God as Father. If you remember, Jesus instructs us to pray in secret because in secret our Father will hear us and reward us. Again, like we looked just a minute ago about teaching us how to pray and we address our Father. And then when we fast and we worship, it is God our Father who watches and takes notes. And, and all those things are true and applicable in our lives today, but maybe in this moment here today with us, the fatherly love of God speaks to us most strongly in a certain place in that sermon. If you remember in chapter 6, starting verse 25, Jesus tells us, do not be anxious about your life. And he goes on to talk about the things in life that, that bring us anxiety. How will we have what we need to live and survive today? What does tomorrow hold? What should I be doing now to make sure that I'm safe and happy and healthy? And what is Jesus' answer for those of us that walk with this brooding anxiety over life? The fears over our needs and our provision our future and security. Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows you need them all. And he reminds his children that God takes care of the birds and the flowers and aren't you and me of much more value than them. And then he tells them that in the midst of anxiety that you have a heavenly Father who knows your needs, who values you as, you as his beloved children, and wants you and me to take our focus off our fears and focus our attention on seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, release your grip of your fears, take hold of God, and trust his fatherly provision for you. Let's be honest. As we live our lives, what do we think determines the course and quality of our life? Ourselves and our decisions? The president or those ruling in politics? The billionaires over the economy or our boss or even our friends and family? The Illuminati? I don't know. <laughs> no. There is one who determines the course and quality of our lives, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord over all things, your Father. You have a promised access and a promised provision in his loving care. And like Milt said last week, we trust his goodness in both the harvests and the droughts of life because we trust the heart of our Father who cares for us. I mentioned earlier that there's just so many scripture passages, especially in the New Testament, that talk about the, the promises that come from God being our Father. There are too many to talk about today, but I would be remiss if I didn't just, just briefly just mention real quickly a couple of them that come from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 talks similarly like Galatians 4 about us being children of God with new identities and being co-heirs with Christ, which we're not going to get into, but simply this is what it means. The work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and resurrection— has inaugurated a new future, new heaven and earth, where the curse of sin is undone. Every molecule in the universe will be redeemed, and there will be a glorious existence that we can't even imagine, that Jesus Christ not only accomplishes, but he inherits by his work. And you know what Jesus says? You can have it. And he gives it to us. Why? Because we are co-heirs with Christ as children. But here's what Romans 8 also says. As children of God, that is your destiny. 
But the road to that comes with promised suffering. He says that provided we suffer with him. And as a child of God, it's not suffering, the suffering he's talking about, it's not just the suffering that we all go through because of our sin and our bad mistakes. No, that's suffering. It's not the suffering that we put on ourselves as this like self-imposed martyr uh, trying to be a jerk for Jesus. Like that's not the suffering he's talking about. He's talking about the suffering when you and I take hold of Jesus and his holiness and his life and what he calls us to. And we walk in humble, faithful obedience in a hostile world to the gospel. And we give up our comforts and our safety and our very lives for the sake of glorifying God with how we live. That is the short suffering on the road to the eternal inherited glory. We don't have time to get into that right now. (laughs) But we do have time for one last promise. God our Father brings us into a promised family. There are no orphans in the family of God, but there are also no only children. When we believe in the name of Jesus, when we receive and take hold of him, when God tells us we have the right to call him Father, it brings us into a community of love, of accountability, of beauty, and even dysfunction of being a family. It means as a child of God, I am not only not my own anymore because I belong to God, I am not my own anymore because I belong to you. And you belong to me, and we belong to each other. We no longer treat each other as just people or even friends or fellow CBC members. We surely don't treat each other, God forbid, as enemies or obstacles to our own selfish plans or desires. No, it means we look at each other in all our differences and all our faults and all our shortcomings and all our quirks and say, brother and sister, fellow child of God, we are family and God is calling us to love and to commit to one another as his family. So what does a family of faith commit to together with God as our father? Well, we commit together to do what we've talked about a lot already, to take hold to take hold of Jesus and the life he calls us to, to let go of the sinfulness and the selfishness and the worldly living that marked us before we were adopted into God's family, take hold of the promises of God and Jesus together, committed to one another, that our promised adoption, our promised access, our promised provision, and all the other promises that come with being a child of God were meant to be experienced in the context of the promised family of God that he adopted us into. Do you believe that, church? The same John that wrote the gospel wrote some letters to the family of God that he was also a part of. Matt uh, referenced it earlier today. He writes in 1 John 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Now let me read that again with our family emphasis. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. God has no orphan children, and God has no only children. We are a family, and let me be clear 
brothers and sisters, individually, we cannot follow Jesus faithfully. But only when we individually commit to life together. There is no other way to be a child of God than to be a part of his promised family, devoted to and loving one another. So I know we've been through a lot, but I, I want to end our time really with, with one last thought and then actually a couple questions for us to ask ourselves. The final thought actually has to do with what John is referencing here at the beginning part of this verse. In case it wasn't clear enough, John reminds us that the very driving reason God offers himself to us as father is because of love. See what kind of love the father has given to us. Later in this same letter, 1 John in chapter 4, John explicitly says, God is love. Who God is, is love. It is his nature as love to act toward us in his role as father. So everything we've talked about today is rooted in love. So a better way of looking at it is this. God doesn't act in love because he is a father. God acts as a father because he is love. Let that sink in. God doesn't act in love to us because he's a father. No, he comes to us a father because in and of himself, he is love. So I was trying to think about that. Like in the greatest example that I've seen personally of like that, that godly parental love on display outside of the gospel, outside of Jesus, just kind of in life. And I asked Aaron if I could share this story. So I'll share it from our family. Um, so we have three children. Like I've said, our youngest, Aiden, uh, he's about to be four. So uh, almost four years ago, right after Aiden was born, uh, we're home from the hospital. He's about three weeks old. And uh, he's in that kind of co-sleeper in the room with us because, like, babies are super needy. It's like, um, anyways. But he's there with us, and he's a little cute little dude. Um, but in the middle of the night, I hear Aaron get up and go into the restroom, which is kind of normal. Um, but then I hear... and. I'm going to be just kind of open and maybe a little, like, not graphic, but to say the story. Um, but I hear a call from out of the bathroom. Call an ambulance. I'm bleeding. Don't come in here. That'll wake you up, right? So I get on the phone, dial 911, kind of get in that flight or fight mode, you know? So I'm like, okay, what do I need to do? I go and I unlock the front doors because I don't want to delay the... Uh, paramedics from getting in, so everything's gone. She's in there. I'm trying to talk to her, like, hey, you okay? And kind of talking. Um, she had suffered uh, a postpartum aneurysm, and she was in the bathroom bleeding to death. Yeah. And so she's in the bathroom. I'm waiting for the paramedics. And actually, in my mind, they got there, I, I feel like, pretty quickly. So they get there. By that time, I'm kind of holding Aiden. Um, so they come in. They come back into our bedroom. I mean, they take that gurney all the way back into the bathroom, and they load her up. And for the first time, I see her. I kind of see a glimpse into the bathroom. And again, not to be gross, but it's like a crime scene in there. And so they load her up, and here's Erin, weak and dying at, at the moment of her greatest vulnerability. She's being wheeled off. I'm holding our three-week-old. And then something happened in the chaos and in, in, in just the heartache that was so beautiful because they're wheeling Aaron out, like down the hallway. I'm standing there with her, and she is literally dying. 
And she has one last thing to say to me. And you know what she says? Aiden's formula is on the top shelf of his closet. In that moment of her weakness, in that moment of vulnerability where it would be absolutely appropriate for her to be turning all of her attention on herself that moment, where was her mama heart? On her child. What her child needed. And guys, that was beautiful, and I still am holding on to it now, and I think you feel the weight of that beauty in that moment, and I'm so grateful for Aaron and her heart that way. But guys, let's not confuse. That is a shadow of a glimpse of a moment of a speck of the divine love that the Father has placed upon us, his beloved children, that he was willing to send his son in the most vulnerable and weak state upon the cross bearing the weight of our sin and guilt as sons of disobedience becoming sin upon the cross for us so that we could be adopted. Guys, the heart of our Father was to plan our salvation. The heart of God the Son was to accomplish our salvation. The heart of the Spirit of God is to seal that salvation and adopt us by regenerating us. Guys, let us not ever take for granted the wonder of the beauty that God is our Father and we are his children. How great the love of the Father that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So I want to ask you a few questions as we close today. As you think about God, your Father, and this promise, I want to ask everyone here and those watching online, Firstly, have you taken hold of Jesus? Have you received him? Are you still trying to live life on your own terms? Is your own Lord? Is your own God? Are you still trying to define who you are by looking inside? Are you trying to make your value and your worth from within? Or do you realize your desperate need for forgiveness and hope and life, and redemption, and wholeness, and love that only comes when you take hold of Jesus and his life for you. Do you take hold of Jesus? And secondly, if you have taken hold of Jesus in here, I want to ask you, have you taken hold of the promise? I don't mean that you know the promise. I don't mean that you can quote the promise in scripture. I mean that you've taken hold of the promise so deeply inside of you that God is your father, and that you're his child, that it's transformed everything about you that you have a new adoption, that you have a new access and a new provision, that you have a new family. Because when you truly take hold of the promise deep down inside, then you can ask, have you taken hold of the new life that that promise brings? I don't mean just a slightly better life than you were before. I don't think a life that just looks morally superior to the unchristians around you. I'm talking about a life that is absolutely torn upside down because of the radical love and grace of God your Father to call you and save you and purchase you back through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son. Have you taken a hold of that new life? And let's walk it out together as a family. Let's do it. God is our Father, and we are his children. How great the love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are.
Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now, addressing you as Father. And Lord, we even understand now, we don't understand the immensity of that. The weight of that love, the weight of that tenderness, the weight of that care and compassion you have for us, and the opportunity we have to live lives in that truth, in that identity, with that access to our God in heaven. So Lord, I pray you would help us as the family we are to live out the promise and the truth that you are our Father and we are your children. Amen.